Section 68 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant. Chapter 68 morale of the two armies relative conditions of the north and south president lincoln visits richmond arrival at washington president lincoln's assassination president johnson's policy after the fall of petersburg and when the armies of the potomac and the james were in motion to head off lee's army the morale of the national troops had greatly improved. There was no more straggling, no more rear guards. The men who in former times had been falling back were now, as I have already stated, striving to get to the front. For the first time in four weary years, they felt that they were now nearing the time when they could return to their homes with their country saved on the other hand the confederates were more than correspondingly depressed their despondency increased with each returning day and especially after the battle of sailor's creek they threw away their arms in constantly increasing numbers dropping out of the ranks and betaking themselves to the woods in the hope of reaching their homes I have already instanced the case of the entire disintegration of a regiment whose colonel I met at Farmville. As a result of these and other influences, when Lee finally surrendered at Appomattox, there were only 28,356 officers and men left to be paroled, and many of these were without arms. It was probably this latter fact which gave rise to the statement sometimes made, north and south, that Lee surrendered a smaller number of men than what the official figures show. As a matter of official record, and in addition to the number paroled as given above, we captured between March 29th and the date of surrender 19,132 Confederates, to say nothing of Lee's other losses, killed, wounded, and missing, during the series of desperate conflicts, marked his headlong and determined flight. The same record shows the number of cannon, including those at Appomattox, to have been 689 between the dates named. There has always been a great conflict of opinion, as to the number of troops engaged in every battle, or all important battles, fought between the sections, the South magnifying the number of Union troops engaged, and belittling their own. Northern writers have fallen, in many instances, into the same error. I have often heard gentlemen, who were thoroughly loyal to the Union, speak of what a splendid fight, the South had made and successfully continued for four years before yielding, with their twelve million of people against our twenty, 
and of the twelve, four being colored slaves, non-combatants. I will add to their argument. We had many regiments of brave and loyal men who volunteered under great difficulty from the twelve million belonging to the South. But the South had rebelled against the national government. It was not bound by any constitutional restrictions. The whole South was a military camp. The occupation of the colored people was to furnish supplies for the army. Conscription was resorted to early, and embraced every male from the age of eighteen to forty-five, excluding only those physically unfit to serve in the field, and the necessary number of civil officers of state and intended national government. The old and physically disabled furnished a good portion of these. The slaves, the non-combatants, one-third of the whole, were required to work in the field without regard to sex and almost without regard to age. Children from the age of eight years could and did handle the hoe. They were not much older when they began to hold the plow. The four million of colored non-combatants were equal to more than three times their number in the North, age for age and sex for sex, in supplying food from the soil to support armies. Women did not work in the fields in the North, and children attended school. The arts of peace were carried on in the North. Towns and cities grew during the war. Inventions were made in all kinds of machinery to increase the products of a day's labor in the shop and in the field. In the South, no opposition was allowed to the government which had been set up and which would have become real and respected if the rebellion had been successful. No rear had to be protected. All the troops in service could be brought to the front to contest every inch of ground threatened with invasion. The press of the South, like the people who remained at home, were loyal to the southern cause. In the north, the country, the towns, and the cities presented about the same appearance they do in time of peace. The furnace was in blast, the shops were filled with workmen, the fields were cultivated, not only to supply the population of the north and the troops invading the south, but to ship abroad to pay a part of the expense of the war. In the north, the press was free up to the point of open treason. The citizen could entertain his views and express them. Troops were necessary in the northern states to prevent prisoners from the southern army being released by outside force, armed and set at large to destroy by fire our northern cities. Plans were formed by northern and southern citizens to burn our cities, to poison the water supplying them, to spread infection by importing clothing from infected regions, to blow up our river and lake steamers, regardless of the destruction of innocent lives. The copperhead disreputable portion of the press 
magnified rebel successes and belittled those of the union army it was with a large following an auxiliary to the confederate army the north would have been much stronger with a hundred thousand of these men in the confederate ranks and the rest of their kind thoroughly subdued as the union sentiment was in the south than we were as the battle was fought as i have said the whole south was a military camp the colored people four million in number were submissive and worked in the field and took care of the families while the able-bodied white men were at the front fighting for a cause destined to defeat the cause was popular and was enthusiastically supported by the young men the conscription took all of them before the war was over further conscriptions took those between fourteen and eighteen years of age as junior reserves and those between forty-five and sixty as senior reserves it would have been an offence directly after the war and perhaps it would be now to ask any able-bodied man in the south who was between the ages of fourteen and sixty at any time during the war whether he had been in the confederate army he would assert that he had or account for his absence from the ranks under such circumstances it is hard to conceive how the north showed such a superiority of force in every battle fought i know they did not during eighteen sixty two and eighteen sixty three john h morgan a partisan officer of no military education but possessed of courage and endurance operated in the rear of the army of the ohio in kentucky and tennessee he had no base of supplies to protect but was at home wherever he went the army operating against the south on the contrary had to protect its lines of communication with the north from which all supplies had to come to the front every foot of road had to be guarded by troops stationed at convenient distances apart these guards could not render assistance beyond the points where stationed morgan was footloose and could operate where his information always correct led him to believe he could do the greatest damage during the time he was operating in this way he killed wounded and captured several times the number he ever had under his command at any one time he destroyed many millions of property in addition places he did not attack had to be guarded as if threatened by him forrest an abler soldier operated farther west and held from the national front quite as many men as could be spared for offensive operations it is safe to say that more than half the national army was engaged in guarding lines of supplies or were on leave sick in hospital or on detail which prevented their bearing arms then again large forces were employed where no confederate army confronted them 
I deem it safe to say that there were no large engagements where the national numbers compensated for the advantage of position and entrenchment occupied by the enemy. While I was in pursuit of General Lee, the President went to Richmond in company with Admiral Porter and on board his flagship. He found the people of that city in great consternation. The leading citizens, among the people who had remained at home surrounding him, anxious that something should be done to relieve them from suspense, General Weitzel was not then in the city, having taken offices in one of the neighboring villages after his troops had succeeded in subduing the conflagration which they had found in progress on entering the Confederate capital. The President sent for him, and on his arrival, a short interview was had on board the vessel, Admiral Porter and a leading citizen of Virginia being also present. After this interview, the President wrote an order in about these words, which I quote from memory. General Weitzel is authorized to permit the body, calling itself the Legislature of Virginia, to meet for the purpose of recalling the Virginia troops from the Confederate armies. Immediately, some of the gentlemen composing that body wrote out a call for a meeting and had it published in their papers. This call, however, went very much further than Mr. Lincoln had contemplated, as he did not say the legislature of Virginia, but the body which called itself the legislature of Virginia. Mr. Staunton saw the call, as published in the Northern Papers, the very next issue, and took the liberty of countermanding the order, authorizing any meeting of the legislature or any other body, and this notwithstanding the fact that the president was nearer the spot than he was. This was characteristic of Mr. Staunton. He was a man who never questioned his own authority, and who always did in wartime what he wanted to do. He was an able constitutional lawyer and jurist, but the Constitution was not an impediment to him while the war lasted. In this latter particular, I entirely agree with the view he evidently held. The Constitution was not framed with a view to any such rebellion as that of 1861 through 1865. While it did not authorize rebellion, it made no provision against it. Yet the right to resist or suppress rebellion is as inherent as the right of self-defense, and as natural as the right of an individual to preserve his life when in jeopardy. The Constitution was, therefore, in abeyance for the time being, so far as it, in any way, affected the progress and termination of the war. Those in rebellion against the government of the United States were not restricted by constitutional provisions or any other except the acts of their Congress, which was loyal and devoted to the cause for which the South was then fighting.
it would be a hard case when one-third of a nation united in rebellion against the national authority is entirely untrammeled that the other two-thirds in their efforts to maintain the union intact should be restrained by a constitution prepared by our ancestors for the express purpose of ensuring the permanency of the confederation of the states after i left general lee at appomattox station i went with my staff and a few others directly to burksville station on my way to washington the road from burksville back having been newly repaired and the ground being soft the train got off the track frequently and as a result it was after midnight of the second day when i reached city point as soon as possible i took a dispatch boat thence to washington city while in washington i was very busy for a time in preparing the necessary orders for the new state of affairs communicating with my different commanders of separate departments bodies of troops etc but by the fourteenth i was pretty well through with this work so as to be able to visit my children who were then in burlington new jersey attending school mrs grant was with me in washington at the time and we were invited by president and mrs lincoln to accompany them to the theatre on the evening of that day i replied to the president's verbal invitation to the effect that if we were in the city we would take great pleasure in accompanying them but that i was very anxious to get away and visit my children and if i could get through my work during the day i should do so i did get through and started by the evening train on the fourteenth sending mr lincoln word of course that i would not be at the theatre at that time the railroad to new york entered philadelphia on broad street passengers were conveyed in ambulances to the delaware river and then ferried to camden at which point they took the cars again when i reached the ferry on the east side of the city of philadelphia i found people awaiting my arrival there and also dispatches informing me of the assassination of the president and mr seward and of the probable assassination of the vice-president mr johnson and requesting my immediate return it would be impossible for me to describe the feeling that overcame me at the news of these assassinations more especially the assassination of the president i knew his goodness of heart his generosity his yielding disposition his desire to have everybody happy and above all his desire to see all the people of the united states enter again upon the full privileges of citizenship with equality among all i knew also the feeling that mr johnson had expressed in speeches and conversations against the southern people and i feared that his course towards them would be such 
as to repel and make them unwilling citizens and if they became such they would remain so for a long while i felt that reconstruction had been set back no telling how far i immediately arranged for getting a train to take me back to washington city but mrs grant was with me it was after midnight and burlington was but an hour away finding that i could accompany her to our house and return about as soon as they would be ready to take me from the philadelphia station i went up with her and returned immediately by the same special train the joy that i had witnessed among the people in the street and in public places in washington when i left there had been turned to grief the city was in reality a city of mourning i have stated what i believed then the effect of this would be and my judgment now is that i was right i believe the south would have been saved from very much of the hardness of feeling that was engendered by mr johnson's course towards them during the first few months of his administration be this as it may mr lincoln's assassination was particularly unfortunate for the entire nation mr johnson's course towards the south did engender bitterness of feeling his denunciations of treason and his ever-ready remark treason is a crime and must be made odious was repeated to all those men of the south who came to him to get some assurance of safety so that they might go to work at something with the feeling that what they obtained would be secure to them he uttered his denunciations with great vehemence and as they were accompanied with no assurances of safety many southerners were driven to a point almost beyond endurance the president of the united states is in a large degree or ought to be a representative of the feeling wishes and judgment of those over whom he presides and the southerners who read the denunciations of themselves and their people must have come to the conclusion that he uttered the sentiments of the northern people whereas as a matter of fact but for the assassination of mr lincoln i believe the great majority of the northern people and the soldiers unanimously would have been in favor of a speedy reconstruction on terms that would be the least humiliating to the people who had rebelled against their government they believed i have no doubt as i did that besides being the mildest it was also the wisest policy the people who had been in rebellion must necessarily come back into the union and be incorporated as an integral part of the nation naturally the nearer they were placed to an equality with the people who had not rebelled the more reconciled they would feel with their old antagonist and the better citizens they would be from the beginning 
they surely would not make good citizens if they felt that they had a yoke around their necks. I do not believe that the majority of the northern people at that time were in favor of Negro suffrage. They supposed that it would naturally follow the freedom of the Negro, but that there would be a time of probation in which the ex-slaves could prepare themselves for the privileges of citizenship before the full right would be conferred. But Mr. Johnson, after a complete revolution of sentiment, seemed to regard the South not only as an oppressed people, but as the people best entitled to consideration of any of our citizens. This was more than the people who had secured to us the perpetuation of the Union were prepared for, and they became more radical in their views. The Southerners had the most power in the executive branch, Mr. Johnson having gone to their side, and with a compact South and such sympathy and support as they could get from the North, they felt that they would be able to control the nation at once, and already many of them acted as if they thought they were entitled to do so. Thus Mr. Johnson, fighting Congress on the one hand, and receiving the support of the South on the other, drove Congress, which was overwhelmingly Republican, to the passing of first one measure and then another to restrict his power. There being a solid South on one side that was in accord with the political party in the North which had sympathized with the rebellion, it finally, in the judgment of Congress and of the majority of the legislatures of the states, became necessary to enfranchise the Negro in all his ignorance. In this work, I shall not discuss the question of how far the policy of Congress in this particular proved a wise one. It became an absolute necessity, however, because of the foolhardiness of the President and the blindness of the Southern people to their own interest. As to myself, while strongly favoring the course, that would be the least humiliating to the people who had been in rebellion. I gradually worked up to the point where, with the majority of the people, I favored immediate enfranchisement. End of section 68. Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas. Jim at jocclev.com.